Dustin, if you take your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 for our time in God's Word this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are quickly coming to the end of this great letter of the Apostle Paul to the church of Thessalonica. It is probably the second letter that he wrote. The first one was Galatians. After the first missionary journey, Paul wrote Galatians, a very stern letter about the false teachers coming in and distorting the gospel. And so Galatians had to be written. It was written to a whole region of churches, and I already preached through that book in the last year. So you can already remember and reflect on the issue with the Galatians and what was going on. But now it's on the second missionary journey. Paul has left the region of Philippi, the city of Philippi. He has been beaten with rods. He's been, had many stripes laid on him. So no doubt, you know, broken bones, maybe some hospital needs and hospital cares for the Apostle Paul. Maybe his robe's been torn and maybe a little dirty and bloodied and it's been tried, they tried to wash the stains out, that type of thing. And he makes his way after having been in the Philippian jail and having that earthquake where the chains fell off and the doors flung wide open and then the Philippian jailer is saved and baptized and all of those exciting things. Paul makes his way from Philippi to the city of Thessalonica. And just because we're getting close to the end of this book, let me just remind you, Thessalonica is like Duluth. It's a port city. They're on the Aegean Sea. We're on Lake Superior. They had a lot of people coming in off the shores of the, of the port there, coming off the shores of the Aegean Sea from all over the Middle East. They also had a major interstate highway running right through their town. They called it the Via Ignatia. We call it I-35. They are built on a bluff, just like we are. Their downtown is close to the water, just like ours. I mean, I've been to Thessalonica. You go there, and it's like, this looks like Duluth. It's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. They had a Bible-believing church. They're just like we do right here. But can you picture Aristarchus and his family? Aristarchus was a Thessalonian. Maybe he sat over here. Aristarchus and his wife and their children lined up, and every Sunday they're eager for the word of God and worshiping. And, and then over here you have Secundus. Secundus meaning second, most likely a slave. Maybe because you only give your slaves num- your number one, number two, number three, number four. So now Secundus is born again, and he's sitting over here with his family. And, and then um, over here you have Demas, who ends up being a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul. And then you have Gaius of Macedonia. So you, these people in the New Testament from the book of Acts, we already understand they're affiliated. They gathered together for praising the Lord and worship and in songs. Um, they sang psalms. They had... Um, Words of exhortation, the exercises of their spiritual gifts. Oh, it was phenomenal. But don't forget, about from here to Hinckley was Mount Olympus. So right south of Thessalonica is this gigantic mountain where the Greek gods lived. Zeus was the main one. And, and then they would sell all, this, all the idol statues of these false gods. So when Paul goes into the synagogue and preaches the gospel, and then I'm sure he's out in the marketplace as well, men and women, boys and girls are born again and a church is formed. And the Bible says in chapter 1 that they turned their back from the pagan gods. When they turned to Jesus, they had their back turned to their pagan gods. Do you know how that affected their worship? Um, How that affected their lives? They all of a sudden were no longer doing things that they grew up doing. Family celebrations weren't the same because they're not offering incense to a certain god or goddess. Their allegiance is to Jesus alone. Chapter 1, Paul says, You became followers of us and of the Lord. You became an example of a church. So all over the world, people can look at your church as a model of how to behave and how to live and how to worship. Then Paul says, In chapter 2, when I came to you, it wasn't with flattering words. I wasn't trying to trick you or manipulate you. I just came speaking openly. But I treated you like a mother. 
tender, nurturing, caring for you, not wanting you to get hurt, raising you up in your, your faith. But I also came as a stern father because you needed some correction and rebuke, and you needed a strong father figure. So Paul comes on one hand, great compassion and tears and care. But on the other hand, when they needed correction, he just stood up and said, you're not walking worthy of the kingdom of God. Get it together. Do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. Then in chapter 3, Paul says, oh, my heart is just broken for you. I wish I could be there myself, but I'm going to send Timothy. So Timothy shows up because Paul wants to know how is their faith. Timothy comes back to Paul and says, their faith is incredible. It is growing. Still lacking some areas, but they're growing. Their love, they love each other. They're reaching the lost. They're waiting for Jesus. They're doing everything. And Paul is so happy, he writes this letter. So picture, you're the Thessalonian church, and this letter is being written or read to you right now. You're like, oh, we love Paul. And he's commending you and praising you. You just, we're enjoying it. And then in chapter 4, he says, I know some of you are grieved about the loved ones who have died recently in your church. You're not sure when the rapture happens, will they be there? Will they get raised up a thousand years later? What's all, how is that going to work? Paul says, I'll, I'll help you with that. The dead in Christ will rise first when Jesus comes. The Lord is going to come from heaven. He's going to come with a loud command, raising up the dead. He's, there's going to be a voice of an archangel and a trumpet of God. And then the dead in Christ, all of the loved ones that have gone on before us in the church age, will be raised up right out of the cemeteries of the places where their bodies lay. They'll be raised up in a glorified body that can be touched and felt and held on to and will hear their voice again, will We'll be able to touch them and, and feel them and communicate and continue a relationship with them. It's going to be glorious. The dead in Christ will rise. And then we who are alive and remain at the coming of Jesus, if we happen to be those who are left alive when he comes back, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, our bodies will change. No more flesh, blood, and bones. It'll be a glorified body. Two hands, two feet, I'll be recognizable, and, and, but we're all going to be caught up together. It's going to be a, fanta- a fantastic reunion. So we grieve, we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. We grieve because there's a temporary separation. There's a short time when we are not together, but our loved ones are safe with Jesus, and they are coming back. They're going to be back in the clouds with us together. I love the word together in 1 Thessalonians 4. And then we're to meet the Lord. Because we're granted going to meet the loved ones who have gone on before us in Christ. But really, we're going to meet the Lord and see him face to face and touch, touch his hands. And we're going to look at the glint in his eyes. Those eyes that hung, you know, that, that saw everything from the, the sight of a cross, from being nailed to a cross. Those same eyes will look upon us with love and devotion. And he's, we're going to hear the rumbling of his voice, the depth. Can you imagine what the, the Lord's voice is? It's just going to rattle us. It's just going to be, but I think it's going to be so warm and consoling as well as he says our name. So we're going to meet the Lord together in the air. Of course, the air is where that same word is used for Satan being prince of the power of the air. I think the devil and all his demons are going to try to get us, but we're going to be up in the clouds here some 2,000 feet above the planet. And the devil will try to get us because he's the prince of that, of that air but he can never do it because we're safe with Jesus, and then we're up to heaven. Wow. But then there was concern about the day of the Lord, and Paul says in chapter 5, I know you're concerned about the day of the Lord, but I want you to know the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It will come when the world is not expecting it. The rapture will be first. 
So he says, you don't have to worry about the day of the Lord. You won't even be here. We're not going to go through the tribulation that is designed for the world after the rapture. We're taken off this earth. But for those who are left behind, the day of the Lord is going to be like a thief in the night. They will be caught off guard. They'll be doing their own thing and not waiting or thinking about the Lord. And then it says, labor pains will come upon them. The seals of the tribulation, one seal, two seals, just like labor pains of a woman. They're slow and not so painful at first. I mean, I'm just telling you from what I know, not from what, you know. But this is what I've heard. They're slow and they're not very intense. But the sooner the baby is, as soon as the baby is getting ready to be delivered, the intensity is fierce and and they're fast one after another after another. So then the trumpet blows. God takes a third of the green grass, a third of the trees, a third of the fresh water, a third of the salt water, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. He's taking all of man's resources, so we have nothing to depend on except him. And yet unsaved man still will not trust the Lord. They will hate him and yell at him and shake their fist at him. So he's not done. There's going to be seven bowls of judgment poured out on the earth. He's going to take away every blade of grass, every green tree, He's going to take away all of our seawater, all of the fresh water off this planet, all of the sun, all of the moon, all of the stars. The planet will be left desolate and cold and dark. And the seven years will be up. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, sudden destruction will come upon them all and they will not escape. If you have not trusted the Lord, do not delay This world has rejected the Lord and rejected truth. And when the rapture happens, that day of the Lord is going to come like labor pains upon a woman who's going to give birth and they will not escape the destruction of it. They can trust him then, but if they don't trust Jesus even after the rapture, they will will believe the lies of the Antichrist and they will be doomed to punishment. Doesn't that like stir us up to evangelism and to reaching the lost? What's happening? What's going to happen to planet Earth? By the way, Sunday school, we're talking about some topics of ethic, and we're gonna, ethics, we're going to talk about global warming. You know, global warming, and what does the Bible say about it? And I'll tell you what, I firmly believe in global warming, biblically. Not the way that the scientists do today, or our culture looks at it. There's going to be global warming. The Lord is going to come, and he's going to melt this earth and heavens with fervent heat. I would say it's more than global warming. I'd say it's going to be a hot, hot fire. He's going to pull apart every element, and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Boy, what a future for our planet. So Paul says to them, to the Thessalonians, listen, the day of the Lord is coming. Do not fear. You're not appointed to wrath. You're appointed to salvation. Your deliverance is going to be a glorified body out of this world. So therefore, comfort one another with these things and build one another up as we wait for the Lord's return. Because every day we live, we're closer to the rapture. What do we do? We comfort one another and we build one another up until the Lord comes back. Now, how do we do that? That's the last text, which I'm at right now. So here's where we've been just the last couple of weeks. Paul says, how do you comfort one another? How do you edify one another? First of all, it has to do with honoring the work and the workers. And he says in chapter 5, look at this with me very quickly, verse 12, and we urge you, brethren, all the beloved, all the family of, of believers here, and we urge you, we ask you, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. This is what we covered last week. So there is um, a relationship between the pastor and the people in the days before the Lord comes. And what's the goal? The work of the pastor is this. 
The work of the pastor is to labor among you. A pastor works. He serves you. He works. He, he works and serves you in the word of God and in prayer and in coming alongside with physical help or whatever help he can, he can minister. The pastor works. He labors for the gospel and for the church. Not only does the pastor work, the pastor leads. It says he is over you in the Lord. He leads. He sets direction. He sets vision. He sets, um, he sets even the, the tone of the church, don't you think? The, the pastor has much to do about the tone of the church um, regarding how he presents the exhortations and how he teaches the word of God. And, and so it's a, it's a challenging work and it's a, it's a difficult work, but the pastor works, the pastor leads, and the pastor admonishes. The word admonish, it means to warn. It means to put sense into the mind. The idea is instruction to correct behavior. The idea is this, this, this is not just a hospital where sick people can get a, a, a bed and a, and a warm meal. And it's not just a school where we can come and we can learn the scriptures. This is a body of believers that are sinners that are striving for holiness. So we need to be exhorted to holy living, to living holy, godly lives. And that's the word admonish. So one of my tasks is to work and labor hard and long for you, and it is to lead you, and it is to correct you. It is to admonish you, and I do this in the Lord. And then the response of the people to the church is to recognize them. And the word to recognize, it means to know them. It's a very intimate word. It means to know them, to, to value them, and to respect them. And then secondly, to esteem them very highly, above measure, in love. We do it in love for one another, and we do it for their work's sake, for the sake of the church and the gospel and, and the work of ministry. I just have been reading much in the past weeks on, on these different topics. And uh, back in 2014, Forbes, you know, Forbes magazine, not that I subscribe to it, Forbes 500, $500 maybe, but, um, but the Forbes magazine said they listed like the top nine jobs and the fifth job, uh, the toughest job when it came to leadership was the leadership of a church, a pastor's ministry. And the idea was taking a group of volunteers and moving them on to great things of holiness and, and a life for the Lord. And one comment that, I, that uh, a man said from a, a church in California, a Baptist church in California, he said the, the life of, of pastoring is like death by a thousand cuts. And I, and I thought, as soon as I read that, I, I, I thought that's what, it, that's what ministry really is like. You get a, a, a thousand paper cuts. When you get your first paper cut, does it hurt? A little bit, but you wrap your band-aid and you move on. And then you get another paper cut, and then you get another paper cut, and then you can handle the first 10 paper cuts because they're just little paper cuts. Big deal. Stop crying. But then after 100 paper cuts or 900 paper cuts, um, boy, then, then it just the, the weight of ministry just almost seems like... And I think of the Apostle Paul with the Corinthian church where he says, the more I loved you, the less I am loved. And and he's, he said, you know, you don't love me, you don't trust me, you don't respect all of those things. And I just think, wow, the, the Apostle Paul felt the weight of the church. And yet what came upon him every day? His love for the believers, his love for the church. He knew this church is God's organism. This is God's church. He bought this church with his own blood, Acts chapter 20 says. This is, you are his disciples, you are his followers, and there's no greater privilege than leading the church in the word of God and in prayer. There really is. And I, and I think there's also, of course, that goes with the heavy burden. So that's 
the pastor-church relationship. Now we're talking this morning about the church-to-church relationship, and then tonight, the church-to-God's relationship. So we did pastor-to-church. Now we're doing church-to-church, and then tonight, church-to-God. So here's the text for this morning, beginning in verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. We see here in this text five groups of people in the church, five personalities. You know what makes the church so difficult? Even though it is Christ's body, it is his temple, it is the dwelling place of his Holy Spirit, the the thing that makes church difficult, we all are imperfect people, with sinful natures. That makes it very difficult. I mean, look at our own, my own Wita family of us five kids. We're all different personality-wise, temperament-wise, likes. We're all so different, and yet God has made us a family, and when the Wita family gets together, we love each other, and we want to help each other and serve each other because we're blood. But listen, the church is even, I think, tighter than blood, Because we have a bond in Jesus Christ. We all have a relationship with him as our savior. We all understand that our sin has put him on the cross and he paid our sin in his own body. So that connection and intimacy runs even deeper sometimes than blood family does. And since we're all imperfect, we're all going to have to learn to love each other. Listen, Paul knew in order for the Thessalonians to remain effective in their evangelism, they had to learn how to love one another here. Because if we can't love one another here, we can't reach the world and explain God's love and his death on the cross on their behalf. Is that true? There's no way while we're shooting here at one another that we can go out and say, come on in and join us. You'll love it. You know, we don't get along, but come on in anyways. God is good. No, we love each other unconditionally, fervent, lived out love. And then the world looks and says, wow, I can't believe it. I need to understand that kind of love. I need to understand who that Savior is. So Paul says, I'm concerned about the church's effectiveness to the world. you got to start right here. Love one another. So here's what he says in verse 14, and we're just going to look quickly at the five groups. Verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren. This word, exhort, it's not like verse 12. We urge you, brethren. Paul, Paul asks the church to respect the pastor and the pastor to labor for the church. He asks that. Here, he exhorts. It's, it's got a note of urgency. He's like pleading with them. It's like he's begging with them. I beg you, brethren, part of the family of God, I beg you. Notice in verse 14, it's brethren. We exhort you, brethren. Is that like the pastor or is it the whole church? Brethren is all of us. This is all of our responsibilities. This isn't my responsibility alone. It's all of our responsibility together as a church. And in doing, being obedient to this text, it furthers and strengthens the church. It, it promotes our evangelism to a greater degree. It, just, it does nothing but good, good, good for the church. Here it is, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. The first group. Who are the unruly? I'm not asking for names. I'm asking for what kind of person is the unruly person. It comes from the Greek, ataktas, ataktas. 
Taktas means to step in line, to be in formation. Ataktas means to be out of formation. Picture a military parade where you've got the military men and women all in, in, in uniform. Everybody's got their exact uniform on. It's crisp. Everything's tied the same way. Everything looks the same. Their shoes are spit, spots, polished. And the, the marching is going in there. Click, 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 right down. I mean, it's fun to watch a whole military parade when they're in step and they're walking and their cadence is identical. And they just look like one beautiful unit. But let's say somebody shows up and their tie's not tied and their collar's dirty and their buttons are not on and their shoes aren't polished and they're not walking left, right, left, right. They're walking all over the place. When you're looking at that whole mass of uh, military movement, who do, you, who do your eyes draw on? The, the autoctos one, the unruly one, the one that's just out of line, out of step, going against, um, creating disunity, just blurring the vision. That's the idea of the unruly. The unruly are those who maybe would murmur and complain. You know how I've said this before. In Philippians chapter 1, do all things without murmuring and complaining. I'm sorry, Philippians 2. Do all things without murmuring and complaining. How many things without murmuring and complaining? All things. The word murmur, gongosimus, in the great gongos, it has the word gong. You hit a gong, and it just like slowly reverberates where you can hardly even hear it, but you can, it's in there, the background, you can hear that gong. And the idea is, the murmuring is all the quiet talking. Well, so-and-so, he did, she did, so-and-so. Just anything to create division, anything to slander somebody, to cause somebody to think less of somebody else. Well, do you know what they did? Do you know what they said? I'm never going to talk to them again. Well, I'm not ever going to be a part of this. Nope, I'm, you know what? I'm going to stand right here and everybody's going to make it my way. And if they don't march with me, then they're out of line. And, and next thing you know, the whole military parade is out of whack and it doesn't look even pleasing to the eye. And that's what can happen in the church. There's men in the New Testament that Paul picks out and says, these people are unruly. Alexander, Hymenaeus, don't follow their teaching. Don't follow their practice. They did much harm to me. They did much harm to the church. They're, listen, Paul writes to the Thessalonians. How old is the Thessalonian church? Maybe six months. They're a brand new church. And Paul says, beware, you're going to have unruly people in your church. What do you do with the unruly? You warn them. Same word, admonish. It means to put sense into their mind. It means to teach them with the idea of correcting. To sit down and to say, here's what the scriptures say. Now follow this. This is how we walk in line. Obey this. Follow this. We, we're not passive. We don't let the unruly just stay unruly. And again, it's not just the pastor going around and warning everybody. We're all warning each other. We're all coming alongside saying, hey, brother, you know, I feel like in this area, you're unruly, you're out of step, but let's look at this, and how can I help you, and what can we do, and let's, let's walk together. Let's be of one heart and of one mind. So we want to take care of that. We want to be there to help those individuals, right? We don't get angry. We don't get mad. We don't just give them no chances and out they go. No, we work with them. We warn them. We challenge them. We, we bring them alongside. We, we warn them about the consequences of their behavior and the unity of the church and the glory of the gospel and all of those things. What's the second group? What do we do, Paul says? Because not everybody is unruly, 
He says that there's a second group to be concerned about and to watch over in the group. Verse 14, warn those who are unruly, you comfort the faint-hearted. Now, the faint-hearted, ogliosukas, I think in the Greek, ogliosukas, meaning they're small-souled. If the unruly are outside the church or on the edge of the church firing inside, then the faint-hearted are all those huddled in the very middle. They just have such a small faith. They're, they're faint-hearted. Here's the best way I can give it to you. I don't know, I wasn't there, but in the Civil War and before, they, the way that two armies fought was there would be a large open field and you would have a, a line of men with muskets, and they would stand in formation with many behind them, and they would march on this field, each army coming to each other. Maybe one has 10,000, maybe one has 12,000. And when they were less than 100 yards away, they would stop. Now, that's not very far, less than 100 yards. And they would have their muskets loaded. They would then put them up, and they would fire as they started marching, they would just fire into a line of enemy soldiers that are just standing there. And then you would reload while the people behind you are shooting. Then you would shoot, and it would take you time to reload. Meanwhile, the enemy shots are... You know the enemy is right there with their guns pointed at you. And a person here is dying. A person here is dying. Are, are you faint-hearted? Or are you bold as a lion? I bet many of those young men in the Civil War were faint-hearted. I bet they were thinking that they are firing their weapons and they're only 100 yards away and I, in the next two seconds I could be dead. But you know what the army had? The army had a non-commissioned officer on a horse. What was he doing? Riding up and down the line. What was he saying? Hang in there. You've got to stand your ground. Reload your musket. Fire. Reload your musket. Do not retreat. Stay here. Move forward. Take another step. Take another two steps. And he's going back and forth saying, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't stop. If you stop, we lose it all. Hang in there. You can do it. Fire. Aim. You know, or ready. Aim. Fire. He'd get it right. And he would, he would go up and down the line. And then you'd be there with your musket. What would you be thinking? I can do it. I can stand my ground. I can take another shot. On and on. I think that's the idea. There are people in the church that are just small-souled. They're faint-hearted. They're worried about everything. Do we have enough money? Are we going to be able to do this? Do you think that I, I, I can't witness? I'm too afraid. Are you sure we should do this? Well, maybe we shouldn't do that. But we've never done this before. But I don't know. This doesn't make any sense. You know what I'd prefer is what we always do. Keep doing the same thing and let's not do anything different. Let's not change the service times and let's not add another song and let's not do this and let's not do that. And everything, you know, we're just, they're, they're, they, they can't get out with, and take a bold step or a risk. What do you do for the faint-hearted? You don't shoot them. You don't shoot them down because they're faint-hearted. You comfort them. This word comfort means to come alongside. You Parakaleo, you come alongside and you say, here, we can do it. We trust the Lord. He's going to give us the help. He'll give us the power. He'll give us the strength. We can do it. It's worth it if one person can be saved. It's worth it to be obedient to the Lord. Let's walk together. I'll walk with you. I'll call you this week three times, and we'll talk. I mean, sometimes we need to do that. Listen, I was, I was just talking to somebody who was afraid of, of, of uh, flying on an airplane, and that's a very, very difficult thing. 
sometimes I've been on flights where I get scared and I fly a lot. And there's been flights where I'm like, actually, it was, I think it was Andy, Andy and Ben when we were going to, and Bing and Kathy, when we were going down to Haiti. It was, I think it was Andy's first flight. Where is Andy? Yeah, there he is. Andy, it was your first flight, right? And I'm sitting next to Andy or I'm sitting by him. I'm like, this is flying's a piece of cake. It's like you're sitting in your living room. No problem. We no sooner get out of Minneapolis, and it's bumpy. I've never, I mean, we're up and down and up and down. You can't even have a glass of water on your thing because it splashes all over. I'm like, Andy, flying's not really like this. You know, you're really, we're not going to crash. I mean, and he's like, you know, he's looking at me. I'm like, it's like, live, it's like sitting in your living room. I was trying to comfort, and he wasn't really faint-hearted, but I was trying to, but, but this person, so this person was, is afraid of flying. And you know what happened? She saw the pilot and the, before the flight, and she went to the pilot and just broke down and said she was scared to fly. And the pilot, next thing you know, he's comforting her. He's coming alongside her. He leaves the flying of the pilot. Hopefully it was on autopilot or there were others there. He came back during the flight to talk to her and to make sure, are you okay? And she, she thought it was the greatest flight. He came back, I think, three Three or four or five times during the flight. Oh, he even, he even do you need anything? Uh, do you want a fresh cookie from first class? Well, just whatever you need. We'll make your flight. And, and, and then I think one time she said, well, shouldn't you be flying the plane? I mean, <laughs> he's like, well, no, there's others up there. But that's the idea of comforting the faint-hearted. We're just not letting people go. You don't just let them wander on their own in discouragement and fear. And, and we come alongside and say, you know what? We're, the whole church can rise and fall on this. We'll rise together on this. Let's stand together. Let's do it. Let's, stay what's, let's do what's right. That's the faint-hearted. Then he, he said, well, listen, there's the weak. Uphold the weak. Who are the weak? This word weak, it's the idea not of physically weak. It's spiritually weak. You know, those who are spiritually weak are prone to sin. They miss a couple of services. They're not around accountability. They're not around other believers. Next thing you know, they're maybe watching bad things. They're saying bad things. They're doing bad things. And they slip right back into sin. They're just, they're spiritually weak. And then, you know what sin does? Living in willful sin creates physical sickness. And so, no doubt, there's groups of people in, the, in every single church that are just spiritually weak. They never get to the point where they can say, I can trust God. I have absolute assurance of my salvation, and I can live with victory. I can live in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're weak. They think, I can't do it, and they're back to their sin. Then you pick them up, and then they're back in their sin. What do you do with the weak in the church? The Bible says, uphold them. What a great word. It means to come face to face and to hang on to them like this. You uphold them. You're there for them. You call them. You pray with them. You meet with them. You give them accountability. You have, they confess their sins to you. They, they let you know, here's what's happening. Here's what's bothering me. Here's what I've done. And you're not judgmental. You're restorative. You're just restoring them to the, to the family of believers again. That's what you do to the spiritually weak. You pray for them, you uphold them. You don't let them go, you don't let them fall. You, you, you go after them. There are people that are just prone to sin. They've never gotten complete victory, and if you're not careful, they're back in that same spot. So we're just watching one another, we're upholding the weak. What do we do for the unruly? We're warning them. We're clearly warning them and putting sense into their mind and correcting them. What do we do for the faint-hearted? We comfort. We come alongside and encourage and strengthen. What do you do for the weak? You uphold them. I'll pick you up. I'll bring you to church. I'll do this for you. I'll do that for you. I'll, I'll be there. I'm here for you. I'm your friend. 
Then there's another group of people. Be patient with all. I love it. Every single one of us, we need to be patient with each other. We have a way of irritating one another and of frustrating one another. We're people. That's what we, that's what we do with our sinful natures. We, we can get under one another's skin and we can be irritable and we can be hard to live with and hard to deal with and hard to worship with and, and we can just be difficult people. What's the solution? What does Paul say to do? Be patient. Long-suffering. You endure, 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 and you never give up on them. And you never retaliate, and you never get angry, and you never take revenge, and you, you never spit out hurtful words of malice or slander. You simply, you're patient. You're patient. You're patient. We love each other. Our church rises and falls on our relationship with one another, and our goal is we've got to reach the last out there. And how do we reach the last? We're doing well loving one another here, then it's easy to go out. We've got the support of the whole church. We just go out and we win the last for Christ. But what do we do for all of us who are frustrated with one another? We're just patient, enduring, long-suffering. But then there's one more group, the fifth group, verse 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. You never, ever, ever take revenge. You never treat evil with evil ever. We don't do it. Ever. What do you do to those who are wicked or to those who are evil against you? You love them. You're kind to them. The Bible says you do good. Now, what's our tendency? Somebody attacks us, we attack back. Somebody's evil towards us, what do we like to do? Get them back a little bit better in the evil category. God says, that's no place of yours. Vengeance is not yours. God is going to take vengeance on them. There is revenge. God will take vengeance on them. But he's the only one that has the ability to do it. He knows the heart. He knows the timing. We let him do it. We let him take the revenge and the vengeance. We don't. We don't ever do that. We don't ever say, well, they deserve that, so I gave it to them. Sorry, that's not your right. You lost that right when you became a believer. Your only right is to do good to others. That is it, to do good and to love others. You have no right to do anything else but that. For evil, never respond with evil. I still think of the case of the church that, that split, and this is overseas. There was a church that um, their pastor was gone for six months learning the Bible at a seminary, and the one leader of the church, the one man said, I want to build a, a brand new building right up the mountain, maybe 300 feet north of here, on the same mountain, not very far away. And part of the church said, yes, let's do that. Let's not be here. Let's go up there. And the church split. So they had a building. The same church had one building 300 feet far um, up that mountain from the other church. And there was animosity between the two churches. And when, after church, one of the pastor's daughters was coming out of the one building, one of the men in the other building grabbed a big rock and hit her in the head with it and cut her skull open. And there, there's no medical right there. There's no roads up. There's, no, there's nothing up there. I mean, now that family could easily take, for that evil, could be evil to the... I mean, do you see what could happen? 
boy, watch out the next time that guy leaves the church. Who knows what's going to hit him? But we're never called to do evil when evil is given to us. Never. Never. Jesus, when he was going through those trials where he was proclaimed innocent, and then the Roman soldiers hit him with clubs, pulled out his beard, put a crown of thorns on his brow and mocked him, what did Jesus do? Did he have a right to take revenge right there? He could have put them all to dust. He could have said, enough of this, you're dead. And he had every right to do it as the son of God, as God himself. But it says in, in 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile against. When he was threatened, he, he allowed himself to suffer. Knowing that the father had committed all things into his hand, he let the father, he said, father, I'll let you deal with this one. They are hurting your son. You, you pay them back in the future. I'm not going to. And so he suffered quietly, never opening his mouth. That's how we do it. We never give evil for evil, ever. We only do good, both for yourselves. Pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. That's the five groups. Now, tonight, we're going to switch our focus and talk about what do we as a church do for God? What do we do in our relationship to God? Here's the challenge. 